Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. I don't know if any of you have ever worked with epoxy glue before. That's funny. Um, you obviously then know where I'm headed. If you don't know about epoxy glue, I'm not trying to impress you or tell you anything. I'm just trying to use it by way of an illustration. But epoxy glue, from what I understand, which is very limited, that you have these two tubes, and the one tube is full of this resin stuff. It, it's very sticky. It's, it's just gooey. It's, it's really a mess. And, and if you didn't know, you might just think that if you took that one little tube full of that resin and you put it on whatever it is you're trying to bond together, that it would work. Well, friends, trust me, it does not work that way. You have to have something else, and that's the other tube. And I don't know the right way to say it, but I'm just going to say it this way. That other stuff I call the activator. There's something magical that happens when you take that resin and you mix that activator together, whatever you put that stuff on when the activator's with the resin, you're going to be stuck like Chuck, right? It's going to work. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. Here's really where I want to go this morning. And that is simply this, that no matter what you may have in your life, if you only have the one tube but it's you don't have the other tube called love, and love is the activator, no matter what you're doing, is not going to stick. No matter what you're trying to do, the bonding that you hope to have in relationships, the bonding that you would hope that would happen in your marriage, the bonding that you would hope to have with your kids, if all you have is the one tube and you don't have the activator called love, all you're going to have is a mess. And so here's what we want to do this morning is I want to remind you of where we're at. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is sandwiched in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, he says, hey, listen, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you got the resin. And you guys have been applying the resin and you've made a mess of the spiritual gifts. Nothing has really stuck. Nothing is working. You just made a mess of it. And so Paul now says, here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the activator called love. And that's what he does in chapter 13 to help the gifts really do what they have been meant to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as you're turning there in your Bibles, and if you don't have a copy of God's Word, there should be one in the seats, underneath the seats there around you. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the word for love that is repeated here uh, numerous, numerous times is the word agape. Now, you've heard about that word probably before. In the Greek, uh, in, in their world, they had four words for love. We use the same word to describe all of our loves. I love Kenneth. I love Texas football. I love key lime pie. I love my wife. Well, we use love for everything. Well, the Greeks didn't do it that way. They had a word called storge. Storge was the love like I have for my daughter right now who's up here about ready to give a birth to a baby anytime now. Her due date was yesterday. 
uh, but she's still here. And uh, man, I have a love for her that's like nobody else because that's storge, that's familial love. And then they had a word called philia. You hear this word in the word Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. Well, that's the love that I have for my, my brother Frog here. That, that's a, a love that we share that, that's different than the love that I share with my family. But it is a really deep kind of love. And then there's the word, you've heard this word, eros. We get the word erotic from that word. And that is, yes, that's that intimate physical kind of love. And you would expect me to say this, but, but I do share that with my wife, and, and I, I, I share, we have a very intimate love, and it's precious, but it's different than the love that I have with Kenneth or that I have with my daughter Hannah. And then we have the word agape. Agape is the kind of love that is this, that, that is unconditional, that it has no limits, it, it, is a, a, it always puts you ahead of me. And it doesn't matter if you're a stranger, if you're my friend, or who you are, uh, that I can love you with agape love because agape love is sacrificial. It's, it's self-sacrificing. Agape love does not depend on the other person loving you back. Agape is the one that always takes the initiative. And really, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this word agape is a description, really, of the Lord Jesus, and it's a description of God's love. This love that we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the willing, joyful desire and action to put the welfare of another above my own. That's the kind of love that's described here in 1 Corinthians 13. Now, you may have uh, read 1 Corinthians 13. You may have had it read at a wedding. You may have heard it. You may have seen it. It may be hanging in your, your, your office or your living room. But many descriptions have been given over this beautiful chapter on love. Some have called this the interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Some have called 1 Corinthians 13 the Beatitudes set to music. My favorite description, and perhaps my theological uh, hand is leaning this way, I'm showing you where I lean, but really 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is none other than a portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to jump into 1 Corinthians 13. I want us to take a look at the greatest of all time. And that would be love, because love is the goat, okay? We're going to settle that right here today. The goat is love. I wonder if you'd stand to your feet. I know you've been standing, but we're going to do it again to honor the Lord's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says it this way. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging what, church? And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I even have faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, read it. I am nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, read it. It profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. Love does not brag, and it's not arrogant. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, and it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things 
hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. And when I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see dimly, seeing a mirror dimly. But then, face to face, for I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three. The greatest of these is what, church? You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning, and that's the excelling position of love. The excelling position of love. I want you to go back in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 31. Paul says there, he says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts, I show you still a more excellent way. Paul says, I want to show you something that's even better than the gifts that we've been talking about. Something that's more important than even the gifts themselves. It's the way in which we should use them. He says he wants to show them a more excellent way. That's the word we get hyperbole from. I want to show you to the uttermost extreme that that would go beyond the bounds of what you've ever known or experienced. So he tells them about the excelling position of love. He first talks about this. He says that love excels sensational speech. Love excels sensational speech. Verse 1, he says these words. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but don't have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now Paul is saying here, even if I was able to or you were able to speak every known language on the planet, And if I was able or you were able to speak with such staggering eloquence that it made people just in awe of us, so much so that it even resembled what we would think, and there isn't one, but if we could just think of what angels would sound like when they were speaking. If we had that kind of sensational speech, but we don't have love, all we're doing is making noise. That's all we're doing. We're an annoying, clanging symbol, a noisy gong. Love excels our language, and love even excels our ability to communicate eloquently. Love is far more than what we say or even how we say it. You see, contextually, the Corinthians were speaking in tongues. And they also were great orators. They had been trained by Socrates and Aristotle. And so the the oratory skill was something they sought after. And then they wanted to use these spiritual gifts and speak in all these wonderful tongues. And they were doing it all, but they weren't doing it in love. And Paul says, enough of this nonsense. It's just clanging cymbals in my ears. The mark of spirituality, dear church, is not speaking with a tongue it's most likely controlling the one you have. So Paul says, love excels spectacular, sensational speech. But then he says this, he says, love excels spectacular spirituality. Verse 2, he says, 
I have the gift of prophecy, know all the mysteries of all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. In other words, Paul says, if I have the gift of prophecy, which is really to proclaim God's truth so that people can know and understand the word, or if I have the ability to understand even the deepest mysteries of God, And if I had all the knowledge to understand everything that had been hidden by God, if I knew all the facts there were to ever know, but if I didn't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. That's interesting. If I understand all that's going on spiritually, if I'm able to put on spectacular displays of prophecy and just, I mean, just stun you with what I know about the things of God, but I don't have love, I'm nothing no matter how spiritual I am. If I have the gift of faith, and I'm able to trust God to do what he says to the point that I could literally even move a mountain because God said I could, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. In other words, what good is it to have faith that moves mountains when you can't even move malice from your heart? If your heart is the headquarters of hate then you really have no love. The mark of a spiritual person is not the gifts of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. And so in Galatians 5, Paul tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's the first one on the list, and all the rest flow out of that. Some say love makes the, girl, the world go round. I don't know that love makes the world go round, but I certainly know it makes the trip worthwhile. One little boy said it right about these verses. He said, well, then I guess I'd rather, I'd rather love God than know everything. You've seen them. People who are so smart about the things of God, but yet they're mean as rattlesnakes. Right? Love excels spectacular spirituality. But then Paul even says this. He says, love excels special sacrifice. Let me sell special sacrifice. Look in verse 3. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be born, uh, burned, and I don't have love, it profits me nothing. In other words, if, if I give all that I have so that others can eat and I go hungry, or if I'm so sacrificial that I'll give my body to be burned at the stake, but if I don't have love as my motive for doing it, it gains me nothing. Some terrorists and radical religious people have great zeal, but they do not have love. You see, love is greater than all. It has an excelling position over everything else. You and I can excel in every other area of our life, but if we don't have love, we haven't excelled in anything. Let me, let me help you with what this kind of looks like, maybe on paper, to demonstrate for you a little bit about the equation and how, how love really works. So if I have love in, in my life, think things are good and things happen and that's, that's okay, but, but watch this. No matter what I do, you, you, you can put anything, anything you want to up here. So I'll just put anything. And that stands for anything. Anything minus Love equals what? Paul says nothing. Now think about that. 
Anything you do without love is nothing. Paul, Paul even teaches us some other math skills. You may know this. For my math teachers in here, if I'm wrong, y'all correct me. But here's I know. Here's something I know. That any number times zero equals what? Right? Isn't that good? So anything times love with a big fat zero in it, meaning that there's no love, equals what? He says nothing. Now here's the cool thing about love. If I take love, I take anything, and, and we'll just put it over here again. If I take anything, and I know y'all can't read this, but you're, you're just helping me practice. If I take anything and I multiply it by love, when I have love, you know what it equals? <laughs> It'll equal this. Anything I do with the exponent, whatever you want to put on it. We're going to put 373737. The numbers of the Trinity and then the perfect number seven. In other words, anything that I take, and if I have love, it'll always take what I have done and exponentially make it better. But if I don't have love, it always equals nothing. That's what Paul's saying. That's the superior, just this excelling position of love. You see, I put this up here because a lot of people flunk out of subjects in school. <laughs> it's easy to flunk math. It's easy to flunk social studies. It's easy to flunk history. It's easy to flunk a lot of things in life. It's easy to flunk your marriage. It's easy to flunk business. You can flunk a lot of things, but here's what I know. If you have love, you're going to be all right. Remember, Paul says, if I don't have love, it's not just a deficiency, it's nothing. Without love, I produce nothing. My presence is nothing, and I procure nothing, Paul says. So in your relationships, do you really have love? I mean, you can have small gifts and talents and, and lots of love, and that love will amplify and multiply your, your gifts. But if you don't, in other words, let me say it like this. If I don't have much materially to give to my children, but I have love, I've got all I need. And they've got all they really need. Because anything I have plus love is always more than enough. Always. So we see the excelling position of love. Now let's see the enabling properties of love. The enabling properties of love. What is love? Most of the time, when we think about love, we think about love being an emotion. I'm going to put this here, and the rest of y'all are going to wonder if I'm going to trip over it the rest of the day. All right, don't worry. If I do, I'll get back up, okay? Most of the time when we think about love, we think about what it feels like. We think of it as an emotion, and that's so common in music. I mean, think quickly right now, if you will. How many of you can name a song right now with love in the title? Go for it. Love is all you need. What's it got to do with it, Tina? Come on, right? What else? Yeah, what's love? I've been telling you, right? You, you can think of them all like right there, right? Well, I did some research this week about the top songs in the past few decades and the words most common in each decade in those songs. 
In the year 2000, the decade of the 2010s, because we're not completed the 2020s where I started, the two most common words in songs in the 2010s were we and yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's it. In the 2000s, the most common words were the letter U and like. In the 1990s, it was the letter U and the word U. In 1970s, it was woman and disco. <laughs> in the 1960s, the two most common words in all songs were baby and twist. In the 1950s, it was Christmas and penny. Now, you, if you're doing anything up here, you notice I left something out. The 1980s, you know what the number one word for both was? It was the word love. So, so usually, uh, you know, you think about this, think about it. I just called to say I love you, right? How can I know it's love? Great song. What's love got to do with it? Put a little love in your heart. Is this love that I'm feeling, right? I love rock and roll. Addicted to love, right? I want to know what love is. The greatest love. Come on, Whitney, sing it with me, right? That's the power of love, Huey Lewis, right? I mean, the 80s were awesome, right? So usually when we talk about love, we talk about what it feels like. But the Bible, listen to me, the Bible, however, talks about what love does, not how love feels. We can talk about what it feels like, but the Bible says love is a verb. It does something. Matter of fact, all the descriptions that we're going to read here about love are verbs. But there's a reason for that. Because love is an action. It does something whether it feels like it or not. It's not just a feeling of patience. It's actually being patient. It's not just like I feel kind. It's actually that I, that I am kind. So Paul gives 15 descriptions of what love does, seven things that it does, and eight things that it does not. So turn in your Bibles, uh, your attention to the page there. He says, first of all, love is patient. That means long-suffering. It's taken from two words, which is large or long, and anger. Thus, patience is when it takes a long time for me to get angry. This patience is not just the ability to wait for a long time. It's a long-suffering attitude. I will suffer a long time with you because I love you. And it's used more often than not being patient with people more than circumstances. So love is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over and over again and not get angry about it. Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher of old, said about patience, he said, it's the word which is used of the man who is wronged and who has it easily in his power to avenge himself but will never do it. When it comes to love being patient, this means that love is not blind. It sees more and it forgives more. It's patient with more. Love isn't giving people what they deserve, but really what they need. Love doesn't say, I don't see your faults. Love says, I see them 
and I'm patient and will suffer with them. The Corinthians were not loving because they weren't being patient. I mean, these guys were so angry at each other, they were taking each other to court. Aristotle taught that, that one should strike back at the smallest offense. And the Corinthians had been, been taught that, and that had influenced their thinking. Yet the Bible says that love doesn't retaliate. Love is patient. It suffers long. Then Paul says love is kind. That word kind means to show, show extraordinary grace to somebody who mistreats you. It's a grace that permeates all of your nature. Here's what the word really means is I did a study of it, the word kindness. As I, I studied it this week and I followed it through the scripture. Here's what I found. It's a mellowing where something would be normally harsh. It's used to talk about what happens with, with wine as it ages over time. It once was very harsh, but it mellows with time. That's what kindness is. It's a mellowing of your spirit where something harsh should be. You see, patience allows me to put up with somebody who's hard to love, but kindness allows me to transform them with my love. Corinthians were selfish. They were spiteful. They were jealous of each other, and they weren't being kind. They were angry, angry at those people who had certain gifts, and, and they were also upset that everybody didn't have their gift. They, they weren't being kind to one another. So Paul says, listen, love, love is kind. And then he says, love is not jealous. That word literally means to boil up. So jealousy is when I boil up inside when I see that you have something that I don't. Love is not jealous means that I boil up inside and I begin to resent you because you have what I don't have. For example, someone in the church today may be saying, wow, man, Miss Toms, man, she looks really beautiful this morning. And then somebody else may reply, yeah. But, and you just start to spread that butter all over the place. That's not kind. That's jealous. The Corinthians were not loving because they were jealous of those who had the more spiritual gifts like prophecy, like, like the, the gifts of knowledge and speaking in tongues, and, and they were just jealous of that, and it was driving them to really be bitter with one another. But then Paul says, listen, for those of you who have those big fancy gifts, he says, love does not brag. That means to be a windbag. It means just to talk about yourself. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy says, I want what you have. Bragging is, is I'm going to tell you about it to make you want what I have. Love doesn't parade its accomplishments. A loving person is not a braggart. The Corinthians were being spiritual show-offs, and they wanted public attention, and they, they wanted to make other people jealous that they had certain gifts. They all wanted to talk at once when they exercised the gift of tongues. And, and Paul later says, listen, we can't have all that. They would make others jealous of the fact that they had gifts. And, and Paul's saying, that's not love. And Paul says, love is not arrogant. It means to literally be puffed up with pride. 
Think about the Corinthians as we've studied through the, the 12 chapters leading up to this. They were so prideful. Listen to me. If you remember, they were celebrating the fact that they had ancestral relationships in their church. They were puffed up with pride. Y'all remember when we covered that? They were celebrating that. Filled with pride. Yet love is very humble. You could say it this way, a big head and a big heart can never exist in one body. Jonathan Edwards said this, the preacher of the great revivals, he said this, there's nothing that puts a man so much out of the devil's reach as genuine humility. Love is not arrogant. And then he says, love does not act unbecomingly. Said differently, love is not rude. It doesn't treat someone else in an unkind way or use poor manners. You see, when I act unbecomingly, I really am acting in a way that I don't care what you think or how you feel. To act unbecomingly is being overbearing, careless, or rude. William Barclay, a, a commentary person, said this. He said, love does not behave gracelessly. Love is more than being gracious and considerate, but love is never less. Love is involved in doing the little things like when we used to open the car door for the ladies. Remember when you were first in love? Do y'all remember that? You'd open the, the door for your wife. I mean, every time you get out, you just open that door for her. Things were great. Today, if a man opens the car door for his wife, one of two things are new. The car or his wife. You remember when you were dating and you were sitting there at the table, you know, drinking your little root beer floats, getting to know one another, and, and she's over there, you know, she's sitting there, and she got her little foot, and she's doing this, and she accidentally kicked you, and she's like, oh, oh, did I do that? I'm so sorry. And today, it's like she's sitting over there, she's doing that, and she hits you, and she's like, get your big foot out of my way, right? Y'all know? The Corinthians were acting unbecoming toward each other because at the Lord's Supper, they were very self-centered. They weren't offering food or drink to their brothers and sisters, much less they weren't even waiting for them to get there, acting very unbecomingly. So Paul says, love doesn't act unbecomingly. People were complaining at a hotel, and this one lady, she was there at the front desk, and she was literally going off at the person working the front desk. The manager happened to come out of his office and saw this lady. He saw her face, and he saw her just going off at this little clerk at the front desk, so he had an idea. After witnessing what she looked like as she was spewing off her vitriol, he went and bought a mirror and put it exactly behind the front desk. And here's what he noticed. When people could see how they looked when they were going off on the front desk clerk, they stopped complaining a whole lot. Here's what I'm trying to tell you, man. Rudeness never looks good. Love, Paul says, doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't insist on its own way. It's not always all about me. Written on a tombstone in a small English village was these words. Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or where he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. 
But yet in St. Paul's Cathedral Cemetery in London, we find these words. Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, and his heart to God. See, love, love does insist on its own way. It puts others first, even when it thinks that its way is the better way. The Corinthians were insisting on their rights to the fact that they were suing each other because they were putting themselves first. They didn't share at the love feast because they put their own needs first. They were insisting in their own way with their own teachers, saying that this person is better. We think this person should be our leader. And Paul says, love doesn't insist on its own way. And Paul says, love is not provoked. This is very similar to love being patient because the long-suffering aspect. But this is not being able to be goaded into mistaken action once your patience has run out. It doesn't just react and do things love doesn't. Love doesn't blow up in anger. The word provoked means to arouse to convulsion or a sudden outburst of emotion or action. That's not what love does. Being provoked is the other side of seeking your own way. So when I'm seeking my own way and I don't get my own way, I am easily provoked. Think about it at home. I mean, if we're constantly telling our spouses that we love them, but yet we're constantly getting upset and angry, there's a mixed message. If we're constantly telling our children that we love them, and yet all we're doing is constantly just talking about the things that irritate us because we're not getting our way met, we're sending a mixed message. One man said this, he says, I lose my temper with my wife and my kids, I blow up and I explode, and I say whatever I say, and then it's all over and done with, and things are back to normal. Let me ask you this, is that how a nuclear bomb works? I mean, when you go off and you explode, does everything just come back to normal? See, love doesn't drop bombs. And Paul says, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Paul says, love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. That means to calculate or reckon. It's an accounting term. It's when an accountant takes a figure and they write it down in a ledger so that they can go back to look at it. It's a permanent indication of a transaction that's taking place. That's the word there. So the purpose would be to make a permanent record that could be consulted when needed. Being provoked is exploding. Taking into account a wrong suffered is the exact opposite. I don't react the right way. I'm not going to just blow up on you, but what I am going to do is I'm going to keep it down in my heart and I'm going to use it against you later. I mean, I've got it written down either in my heart or I even write it down on paper. I put it in my phone so I can go back over it over and over again. And I won't say anything now, but I'm writing it down and you're going to know about it later. And when I open the books and show you, I'm going to prove to you just exactly how many times you've wronged me. Paul says that isn't what love does. Then he says love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. When we rejoice in wrongdoing, we're attempting to justify wrongdoing or make it appear to be right. 
Think about this culturally, what's happening in their culture, and it's happening in our culture. People today just say this, love is love. Well, no, it's not. So when our commercials and, and, and our rallies that we see in the streets and our parades and our libraries are celebrating and promoting and encouraging homosexual love, we're just trying to justify it and make it right. Paul says we don't rejoice in unrighteousness. It doesn't take pride in that. Love doesn't rejoice in sin or wickedness of any kind. And love doesn't rejoice when someone else is hurt, even though they may be my enemy. Now, let me apply this a little more, because one thing in particular here that was happening there, that's happening here, that Paul is saying that love doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness is the idea of gossip. You see, listening to and participating in gossip is really rejoicing in unrighteousness. Because when somebody comes to you and says, hey, have you heard about this? They're wanting to tell you the scoop of something bad somebody else has done. And for you to entertain it, you are rejoicing in unrighteousness. When somebody comes to you and they want to gossip about somebody else, what they're asking you to do is you use your ears for their trash can. That's what they're asking you to do. I want to dump my garbage in your ears. So before listening to gossip, before passing on gossip, before, before even being attempted with gossip, make sure that, that what you are listening to passes through three gates. First of all, when somebody's sharing something with you, ask this question, is what they're sharing true? Is it kind and is it necessary? Is it true? Is it kind or is it necessary? Because if it isn't, we're rejoicing in unrighteousness. Then Paul says, love rejoices with the truth. That, that word there, rejoices, means to intensely rejoice. Love always seeks the best for another and rejoices when they're doing well. But this is not just about the factual truth. It's about the truth of God's word. Love rejoices in truth, but never rejoices in false doctrine. Love cannot tolerate wrong doctrine. So some, even in our own community, say, it doesn't matter really what we all believe. We all should just get together and just work denominationally together because we all just got to love one another. But, but love doesn't do that. Love rejoices in the truth. So what, if I'm going to say something to you and I'm going to help correct you, correct you, listen, if what you believe is going to condemn you to hell, and if I just say, I'm not going to tell you about that, I don't really love you. Love never compromises on the truth. At the same time, love doesn't focus on the wrongs of others or parade their failures. Love doesn't do that. So Paul has been telling us that these properties are what enables us to action because love is a verb. And then he, he takes and he switches it to show you exactly to the extreme that this goes. And he ends this by saying, love bears all things. That means to cover over. Love covers over imperfections, faults, and flaws. It doesn't exploit them or gloat on them or condemn people because they have them. Love covers all things. We can measure how quick we are to love by how quick we can cover somebody else's faults. Love does seek to warn and correct people and rebuke and exhort them, but it does not broadcast their failures. 
Love feels the pain that somebody is in because of their failure and helps carry that burden. It never broadcasts it. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Scripture says. That's that word, bears. And Paul says, love believes all things. Now think, watch Paul's, watch his progression here, because we're going to make a point. Love believes all things. Love thinks the best about others. Love is not cynical. It's not suspicious. When it covers a wrong, when it covers a sin, it believes that that wrong will be confessed and forgiven and that that one will turn to righteousness. It believes all things. Then Paul says love hopes all things. Love is always looking forward. Even when the repentance is, is shattered and it's, it's shoddy, even when the goodness is blown, love still believes that it's going to work out. Love runs, when, when, when love runs out of faith, it holds on to hope. You see, failure is never the final word with the Lord. And it should never be the final word for us. Because listen to me, listen to me, I'm speaking to you from my heart. If you have ever walked down the, the dusty road of having your children backslidden or your, parent, your children turn from the Lord and make crazy kind of decisions, can I tell you, if you've ever walked the, the streets where your marriage partner has done something to hurt you deeply, there is hope because love hopes all things. It believes all things and it bears all things. Then Paul says, listen to me, when, when everything else has walked out the door, love endures all things. That is a word to describe a soldier under assault. And when everybody else has bailed, that soldier does not leave his post. He will do and suffer whatever it takes to stay faithful at his post. Paul uses that word. For endures. And he says, love endures all things. Love won't run. It won't give up. Love won't quit. Love will be standing when everything else has fallen away. And listen to me. It will hold the position at all times, suffer the hardship. Love never stops. Love bears what is unbearable, believes the unbelievable, hopes in the hopeless, and endures the unendurable. There is nothing after endurance. Nothing after endurance because the only thing that's going to endure at the end of everything else, love will still be there. You know why we can love this way? And this seems almost impossible, right? I mean, this seems like a good night. I mean, how am I supposed to love that way? Because listen to me, read these words differently. Jesus is kind. Jesus is patient. Jesus is not sinfully jealous. Jesus does not brag. He is not arrogant. Jesus does not act unbecomingly. Jesus does not seek his own. He's not provoked. Jesus, praise God, does not take into account a wrong suffered. Jesus does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus has covered all things. Jesus believes all things about his children. Jesus hopes all things for his children. And at the end of the day, it'll all be about Jesus. So with the love that he's loved us, now we can love that way. So Jesus 
says, if you were a follower of him, you were called to love like him, so let me ask you by way of application. Now can we go back and say this? Steve is patient. Steve is kind. Steve doesn't brag. Steve doesn't act unbecomingly. Steve doesn't take into account a wrong suffering. I've got a long ways to go. How about you? But I praise God that even in my failure to love, Jesus will never stop loving me. He'll never stop loving you. So when you start putting your name there, you're going to realize you fall short. The only way that you're going to be enabled to do that is to just rest in the love of Jesus. Let's quickly, very quickly talk about the eternal permanence of love. The eternal permanence of love, because there in verse 8, he says, love never fails. That's interesting, because what Paul's really saying is, is that love faithfully conquers. That's what he's saying. Love faithfully conquers. Love endures all things. After everything else has faded and gone away, love is there. There's nothing standing after love. It has withstood it all. He says love never fails. What that means is, is a final falling. The, the word there means, like it describes a flower or a leaf that falls to the ground, withers, and decays. So, so Paul is saying love will never fall, wither, and decay. That, that's not what love does. And the word never there refers to time, not frequency. So there's never a time, never a season in your life, never ever will there ever be a time when love will ever fall away, wither, or decay. It's permanent. It will outlast every other failure, everything else that falls away, everything else that will, will wither and decay. Love is eternally permanent. It faithfully comforts. It is never outdated. Love is never outmoded. Love never spoils. Love never yields to something better because there is nothing better. Love faithfully conquers. I read the story this week about a lady who'd been smoking for 50 years and she tried to quit, but nothing worked. She finally was able to quit and her friend said, how did you quit smoking? She says, I met Leo and Leo said to me, I'll marry you if you stop smoking. She said, I'd never met a man like him. I'd never been loved by a man like him. And I'd never loved anybody like him. So I quit. She said, willpower is not enough, but love did the job. Love never fails. Love faithfully conquers all. So to make his point, he contrasts it with the gifts. Paul says there, love faithfully completes. It faithfully completes. Look in verse 8. It says, but if they're gifts of prophecy, they'll be done away. Pay attention, done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. Please notice the word cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He says the gifts of prophecy and knowledge will be done away with. Done away means to reduce to inactivity. In other words, one day those gifts will be made inoperative. The verb here is in the passive tense. In other words, something is going to act upon them to cause them to stop. 
What will cause the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge to become inactive? Paul says it's when the perfect comes. We'll get to that in a second. But then he says, pay attention here in your scriptures. He says that tongues will cease. That means to come to an abrupt stop or an abrupt end. This is in the middle voice, which means that the acting is happening upon itself. The action comes from within. The tongues had a stopping place. That gift would have stopped by itself. Like a battery that has a limited time, it will stop within itself. Prophecy and knowledge will be stopped by something on the outside, but tongues will stop themselves. We've been teaching on this. You can go back to this, but tongues were a sign gift. Go back and listen to that message. Once their purpose was over, they stopped of themselves. As a matter of fact, throughout church history until the late 1800s, from the early 100s all the way to the 1800s, tongues were never mentioned in church history because they stopped of themselves. Not until the last two centuries did they come back. And I don't have time to talk to you about the blood moon and all the things in Joel chapter 2. That's talking about the second coming of Jesus, not Pentecost. But anyway, the cessations of tongues took place a little while after Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. But prophecy and knowledge have not been done away because the perfect hasn't come. In other words, we still don't know all there is. And we still can't fully proclaim all there is because we still have to have this. We still have that people proclaiming this and telling us what this means. We have all we need to know, but we don't have all there is to know. (laughs) Yet when the perfect comes, we will no longer need anything because we will have perfect knowledge. Because he says, then we we will know as we are fully known. God's knowledge of us is perfect. There's coming a time when our knowledge of him will be all that we need to know. Right now, we're growing as believers in Christ, but there is a time when all this is over because we will be like him because love fully com- completes us. And then he says, hey, listen, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, reason that, but when I became a man, I did away with that. You see, what Paul is saying is, is that right now, compared to what we will be like in heaven, we're, we're childlike now. And he says, we look in this mirror dimly. That, that is the word enigma. It's where we get our word enigma, meaning something that's, that's kind of obscure, something that's partially accurate, something that's a little dim. Paul says that, that when we look in the mirror now, we, we see dimly. We don't get the, the full picture. But one day, one day, we're going to see Jesus face to face. And I don't know about you, but I'd rather look at Jesus face to face than to see him in a mirror. How about you? So can you wait for that? I mean, we were praying earlier, brother, when we said, hey, we get to see the glory of his face. You're like, amen. Can you believe that one day you and I will see the Lord Jesus face to face? Love fully completes us. Brings us to completion. And lastly, love forever continues. Love forever continues. Very quickly, look in verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the goat... The greatest of all time is what, church? Think about it. Right now, we live by faith and hope and love. But one day, our faith, that's trusting in what we can't see, one day our faith will be sight. Right now, we we live by hope. We're trusting in what hadn't happened yet. 
We're trusting in God's promises that sometimes aren't fulfilled right here, right now. But one day, all of our hopes will be fully realized. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. There will be no need for faith and hope in heaven because it's all been realized. But you know what's still going to be there after faith and love have been realized? I mean, faith and hope have been realized. You know what's still going to be there? <laughs> because God is love. Love forever continues. Love will be there in eternity because the greatest of all these is love because God is love. My band would come. I wanted to tell you this. man was dying at the stake. He was being burned alive for his faith, and the flames were keep creeping around him, burning him. And here's what he said. He said, goodbye faith, farewell hope, but welcome love. And he died. Everything else is going to pass away, but love will remain because it is eternally permanent. That's the excelling position of love, the enabling properties of love, and the eternal permanence of love. I'm finished. But can I tell you today that no one, including me or even Justin, can exercise their spiritual gifts in this church unless we're filled with love. And you're not going to be filled with love until you've really appreciated and really appropriated the love of God in Jesus Christ. See, only Jesus can put this kind of love in your heart and in my heart. So I want to right now in this, this moment, if you would bow your heads with me. And, and out of respect for, for the moment, not because this is some religious thing that we're doing, but out of respect, but every eye be closed. Now listen to me as I speak with your heads bowed and your eyes closed. I just want you to hear this. The mark of being a born-again Christian is genuine love for Jesus and a love for people. The Apostle Paul says this, John says, he says, if a man doesn't have love for his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't seen? And then Paul goes on to say that the love of God is put in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So the only way that true love can exist in your heart is to have the Holy Spirit in your heart. And the only way to have the Holy Spirit in your heart is to be saved. And the only way that you can be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. So in this room right now, if you've already been saved, I wonder, would you begin to pray for maybe those around you? But if you've never been saved, if you've never had this transformation in your heart where you know for sure that your sin has been forgiven and that love of Jesus has entered into your heart, I want to right now, if you don't know for sure that you're heaven born, that you're heaven bound, that if you were to die right now, you would enter in straight into the gates of heaven. Let me help you get that settled right now. The Bible says that God shows us his love in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us even when we were sinners. Listen to me. Pray this prayer right now if you want to receive this love. Pray, pray it from your heart. Lord, I know that I am a sinner. I know that my sin deserves judgment. But I need and I want mercy. 
Jesus, you died to pay for my sin. You promised to forgive me if I would trust in you. So I do right now in this moment. I trust in you. I believe on you. I believe that you paid for my sin with your blood on the cross. Oh, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. I believe that God raised you from the dead. I believe that you are the Son of God. And now, with all of my heart, I trust you to save me. Forgive me. Cleanse me. and Come into my life and let me know your love. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, if you prayed a prayer like that today, man, Pastor Justin and some others are going to be down here in the front to receive you. I wonder if you come let us know about that, or if you're still thinking about it and you maybe want to talk to us about that, we'll be here. But if this love thing, the Lord, I believe, has spoken in your heart in any way, this altar will be open for you to come pray with us or pray by yourself in any shape, form, or fashion. But wonder, would you rise to your feet? Those who are going to come help me come. And Jeremy.